So hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush. And here I am excited to chat with Gio, who is the head of product at GetMasha. And so one of the reasons why we're having Gio speak today is because he has helped lead the transition from sales-led to product-led at GetMasha. And so I really am fascinated by companies that can make this transition because it's not as easy as it seems on the front. It's just like an iceberg. You might just see like on the top, it looks like, oh, it's not that big of a, a change. But then you look beneath the organization and the complete organization usually changes. And so it's a massive shift. And so before we get into it, I just want to hear a little bit more about your background. Like how did you get to your position as head of product at GetMasha? Yeah, well, thanks, Wes. Happy to be on the podcast. I think you're doing something really important here. I can tell because it's catching fire so quickly. And yeah, to answer your question, I'm Gio, the product at Matcha. Before Matcha, I worked at Full Story, which hopefully some of you are familiar with. And before that, I founded an ed tech company out of college. That's kind of my background. I've always been working in startups. My background really is design, and that's kind of like the main skill on my tool belt. At least that's how it began. And but that turned into product because I began to be more and more interested in the bigger questions that lead a company to make the decisions they need to make to have a healthy business. And um, so from design, it kind of became product and then product strategy and then road mapping. And I found myself to be really comfortable there and more impactful there. It's kind of the path I took. Awesome. And so for everyone who's listening, who doesn't know what Match is? Can you just give us a quick overview of the company? Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. Some of it dovetails into the story of the transition. So I'll just keep it quick in terms of what the platform does now. So Matcha is a content marketing platform for e-commerce stores that helps users get more value out of their blogs. And a little bit of context there is in the e-commerce world, there used to be a, a huge reliance on Facebook ads and Google ads to just bring in traffic. And those ads were pretty cheap. But as time has gone by, the cost of renting those audiences has gone way up. And it's become increasingly difficult to justify investing a ton of money there because the return isn't as good as it once was. So there's a renewed focus now on catching up to B2B in terms of best practices with content marketing and filling the top of the funnel and using email to nurture and focusing on organic and building your own audience. So we're seeing some renewed energy around content marketing in e-commerce and Matcha is trying to fill that gap and give e-commerce store owners the tools to convert readers into subscribers and buyers, to fill your blog with excellent quality content and to have analytics to see which content is driving leads and revenue, segment your audience by content preference and know what topics and channels to invest in next. Awesome. And so for some of the people listening, they might think, is this just your typical content marketing agency? It's not. So that's kind of been part of my job at, when I joined uh, late 2018. It was an agency at one point. It is now not that at all. It's totally just software powered. You can jump in, grab content. So the library that you can, the library of content that you can access is licensed content. So it's ready to go. It's coming from premium publishers. And then the tools work on your existing content. So it's totally software powered. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that. And so I want to know, because it started off as this agency, and then now it's a software product 
that's obviously using a lot of this content that people can quickly put on their site to see those results and get those visitors to eventually become subscribers and then customers. So what happens yeah. <laughs> in between there? Is that was a big shift. Yeah, so I kind of see our product-led transitioning happening in two different phases. And it probably makes most sense to kind of begin from the start in terms of my involvement. So I joined back in late 2018. The company was heavily sales-led and service-powered. It had already gone through a few iterations. Historically, it sold to destination marketing organizations. It's like, visit Georgia, visit Florida. And then it switched to larger e-commerce brands like Osprey, for example. And they were rather large contracts, long sales cycles, um, high-touch support. And the product, all it was at the time, was just a repository of content that could be published on major platforms with a little bit of analytics attached to it, okay. plus a lot of services. So we would manage distribution. We would manage, we would create custom content for you. We would create... Uh, content calendars and do strategy for you. But the problem there was retention was quite bad because the price point was high and people's content needs were variable. Retention was hard. And then it was difficult to grow the pipeline, which I think is probably a very common problem for companies looking at product-led transition as the pipeline was hard to grow. And the last problem was that the services created an agency-like relationship even right. though we had like software beneath it all, people looked at us like a relation, like an agency and attracted a kind of customer that was a little bit, maybe one word is needy, but another word is like maybe not so comfortable using software on their own. They wanted a lot of help. They expected a lot of help and they expected results like you would an agency, right? Not a tool. Um, so right. those were the issues in 2018. And then, as I joined, kind of my goal was to turn the company into a truly self-service product-first company. And the idea there was to launch the trial. So by the middle of 2019, we, we did launch that trial. The trial began to source a lot of new opportunities, not always good fit opportunities, but it began to be like an engine for bringing in leads pretty efficiently. But the experience wasn't quite built for self-conversion. It was really built to give our sales team leads. And it was more of an interactive demo. And then mm -hmm. uh, an SDR would pick up the phone and, and try to close. And I think lessons from that transition is we were still a little bit too slow to phase out our services. Culturally, that was very difficult. Mm -hmm. The price was too high because in order to have a price point that was still viable for an inside sales team, it still needed to be quite high. Um, we didn't see much self-conversion. In fact, we didn't see any. Um, and our sales team still struggled to, to build enough pipeline. I think we saw retention improve a bit, but still not enough. And then the last big point, and probably the more existential point, was that we learned that there were serious issues with a library of licensed content in terms of long-term retention. We know that it solved a burning need in terms of supply, like people that have no content saw a really good opportunity to have content right away, but oftentimes their content needs would change later on. One issue with licensed content is it doesn't help for SEO. It's really just for filling your channels. It's content that exists elsewhere. It doesn't hurt your SEO, but it doesn't help it. And that made it an unintuitive solution for some folks. And generally we found out that supply, just solving the content supply problem is a difficult 
way to build a business. And so all those things together kind of led us to a full product-led transition that we did in the beginning of 2020. That's a little more context. Yeah, no, there's a lot of things here I wrote down that I want to dig into. The first one is treating the trial like a demo. This is the number one. I hear it all the time whenever companies are making this shift from sales-led to product-led. The sales team will just treat these leads pretty much the same as they would with uh, just a lead that comes in the door, whether it's for a white paper or demo request. It's just treated the same. So how do you tackle that? Like, What actually ended up happening? You realize this, then what? I think we're probably a great cautionary tale for trying to not thread the needle and go like the middle way. I think we were sales-led and service-led in culture and it felt really, really hard. And it even was hard to get the board behind the idea of a full 180 into product-led. So instead we did kind of this middle way and that's kind of where we get the trial as a demo and it just didn't work. I think that's like one of the main learnings for me is if you kind of try to thread the needle and do both, you're just not going to end up doing either right. right. And probably the thing that pushed us to, to go the full transition is the fact that we just weren't getting self-conversion and we weren't hitting our sales goals. Like the inside sales motion wasn't appropriate to our customer and neither was the price point. And so we realized, you know, somewhat reluctantly probably that we needed to make the hard choice. And what was that hard choice? Leaving us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. The hard choice was in the beginning of 2020, we phased out the sales team. We did it, I think, in as good a way as we could. Everybody landed. Right. Fortunately, we did it before all the COVID-19 stuff and everybody found their next spot and they understood it wasn't on them, right? Like it was the wrong sales motion for the product and for the audience. And right. we also went a little leaner in other departments, but you know, that was very difficult. I think it, it required a lot of one-on-one conversations, but it also required a really crisp vision of the product roadmap. I think for us, that was the artifact that allowed us to do it and to give a picture of the future to the folks who stayed at the company that they could find some clarity and some motivation from. So that to us was like really the, the key way to kind of rally a company around a change like this. And what did that vision look like? Like, what were you telling people to say, you know, this is going to be worth it. It might not be the best situation right now, but it's going to get better. So tell me, like, how did you motivate the team around that? I think it began with talking to a lot of customers, which I'm sure everyone who's gone through these transitions will say the same thing. It's talking to as many customers as possible, forming this point of view about, the problem and the market and the ideal customer and building a roadmap around that. And the key thing there is being able to say, well, the way we used to do things wasn't working. And we know why. Um, we've talked to these customers. We, we did the work to understand what was and wasn't working. And we know that it's, it was the price point. It was the fact that there was all this heavy success and kind of issues with accountability. And we also looked a lot at comparable companies. That that, Maybe that's one thing that isn't talked about that much is sometimes it's easier to make that argument when you can point to a similar company that went through a similar transition or 
has had success with product led. And that can be a source of clarity and comfort too. And then again, yeah, just having that really good roadmap. Interesting. And so there's a couple of things. There's motivating your team. And then it sounds like there is the board as well and yep. getting their buy-in. So I know a lot of people who are going to be listening, they are going to be working at like venture-funded companies in a similar situation. And how do you convince the, the investors and the board behind this new potentially risky version of pursuing business? Because a lot of it, let's face it, like although there is like the successful Zooms and Slacks out there, there's a lot of product that companies that just didn't quite make it at the end of the day. So it is like anything, it's a risk. Yeah, I think that's a good question to ask. I mean, it's probably equal parts just looking at the numbers and knowing the reality of the numbers and being very honest with ourselves and with the board about what those numbers mean for the long-term future of the company. I think it's very difficult to make a transition like that without the numbers telling a very clear story. Like, and in yeah. our case, the numbers were saying it's not working. And that wasn't like a very arguable point. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is just the leadership team having a lot of conviction around this direction. And I think a good board trusts its founders and its leadership team and knows that if they have a lot of conviction and they can articulate a vision again via a roadmap, that it's worth doing. So it's those two aspects, at least it was for us. Okay. And so you also mentioned like the sales, inside sales motion, you had to help them find other opportunities. And then whenever it came to, let's say the services component of that every business, like did that change at all? Or did people start doing a little bit different things since there wasn't as much service arm of the business? Yeah. So we did keep one salesperson that has been with the company for a long time. and Yeah a kind of persona that's very generalist and adaptive. And he now like works in more of a support capacity and is kind of doing sales through support and helps people buy and, and has like a bunch of productive touches that get people to convert. And so that transition was fairly smooth. And I think you have to choose the right salesperson that is flexible enough to do that. Certainly not all of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the services side, I think similar. It's like there were a few contract, there are a few service folks that we needed to keep and still keep in order to maintain contracts we have out, right? For legacy yeah. like customers, and there's a little bit of that. But then the others, it's not everyone could say because what the work they were doing was didn't really factor into the long term roadmap and where we wanted to go. And then other folks did make a transition and went into more of a support role or more of a Instead of managing distribution of content, managing content promotion, they'll do like a one-hour consulting call. And they'll kick off that customer so that they can be successful on their own. But there was some reorientation of, of those folks too. Okay. No, that's awesome. I'm so happy you mentioned the sales as support. Because yeah. as I've been doing a lot of these interviews, support keeps popping up for so many product-led businesses, especially even ones that are just making that transition, is like, what is the role of support? Because it has a lot of the same capabilities as potentially sales if you you use it right. <laughs> so in your opinion, like, what is the role of support now in a product-led business? Well, I think for us, the way we reorged was we kept our whole engineering team and we kind of combined product and marketing into one team called Growth. And then we combined 
our customer success team and our sales folks into one team called customers. And they kind of own the support queue. They own intercom. They own a lot of some of the automated emails that go out to drive adoption and conversion and expansion. And they kind of help us understand which touches are particularly effective. And then sometimes we go and we automate those into the product. But generally, it's just like basically business development, some customer development interviews, being on the front lines of talking to customers and identifying those key pains that that can be an input into the roadmap, but also an input into growth experience. So they're kind of like, it's hard to explain it exactly, but maybe a combination of front lines talking to the customers and then figuring out what really are those pains that drive conversion and making sure the rest of the company are super aligned on that. Interesting. I love that. Just like figuring out what are those things that maybe that support person is doing manually. And if it really correlates to, hey, this is helping so many people become successful, let's automate this. And I see that that whole strategy, I don't know how you typically set up in your company, but I've seen it in a lot of others where they might look at what support's doing, analyze every single ticket, and then they just try and figure out, okay, what are those things that uh, in the product roadmap we could introduce to help prevent maybe like half of that, or I wish you could say half (laughs) whenever you're doing that research, that'd be incredible. But maybe it's even a small portion, but it just makes it successful. I know... I was talking to uh, David, the CEO of Hotjar. Like, that's his gold mine, he calls it. He's like, I just go to Zendesk, look at all the tickets. He nerds out about it. Just finds like, what are the problems here that we could really solve? And so I think support is such a feeder for knowledge of your users. And so if you use it right, you can really help build that product roadmap. So I want to focus on that part of the roadmap. So how do you use support? And like, how do you really structure your roadmap now? Like what are the inputs you really look for? Yeah, I think that's a good question in terms of how it comes from support. Um, I think we began, so in the context of the transition, the way we started is by using Amplitude's framework, North Star metric framework, which we really liked, and used that process to define a series of inputs. And then again, that North Star method. And that was a bit of a grueling process, but it, it forced us to have a lot of consensus around really what our goal was. And from that, which was a, a team exercise, we were able to build out a new roadmap. And the change in mentality came from defining that roadmap. I would even say like that's even where the culture shift began. And the reason why that's the case is a roadmap forces the founding team and, and the leadership team to get super clear on what their point of view on the market is. You can't really talk about what we're doing in three months, what we're doing in six months, and what we're doing in a year or two years without having a really like built-up intuition and point of view. Um, otherwise, you're, you're kind of just making a few guesses and you wouldn't really feel comfortable telling that to the rest of the company. So it, it's like, in some ways, it's the roadmap, but it's also all the work that needs to be done to be convicted about your roadmap. And it kind of forces you to be really intentional about your hypothesis, your measurable goals, what are your upcoming product investments. And it also forces you to make all the really tough trade-offs. And you can't make those trade-offs again until you have that philosophy about where you're headed. I think the other side of it is a roadmap is both company-facing and product-facing, right? Like 
I have a version of the roadmap that's meant for an all-hands environment and another one that's more meant for an engineering environment. And that also forces you to get really precise and make sure that prioritization is framed in a way that the stakeholder you're talking to will understand and be motivated by. And you need that to really drive prioritization and to make people feel like they can be autonomous and to build that consensus that's needed to get that culture change over the line. And then one last thing I'll say on the, on the roadmap is they're really hard to make. And anyone who's done it, I'm sure it rarely rolls off the tongue. It's, if you take it very seriously, it should be hard. And also they go stale really fast, right? Like the next month you're like, ah, oh, not sure I believe in this and that anymore. But even with those limitations or, or with those difficulties, I've found it crucial to continue to update that and update it based on new learnings and updated assumptions and, and even be kind of dogmatic about our point of view in order to stay focused, not to mean we won't change our minds. Like I think we're still disciplined about reflection and measurement and updating our, our point of view. But until we do update it, we're kind of, we try to be dogmatic about it in order to keep focused and not asking questions that are distracting. So it's kind of a mix of being dogmatic until you see the right data or the right signal in, in some form. It could be anecdotal at times that causes you to, to make a, a change and then communicate that change just as clearly. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that as well. And as we, we wrap up here, the one question I want to dig into is when it comes to the culture of like, let's say the sales-led versus the, the product-led mindset within a company... What have you found is an effective way to really get everyone on the same page? I know you mentioned like there was that North Star metric. It sounded like that really did help you quite a bit. But I'm curious if there's, there's anything else too that you found has been like a catalyst for getting your team thinking about how they can potentially use the product to hit their goals. Yeah, I, this may come from my design background, but my bias is if you can empathize with the user then you're going to start to think about the product. And then you're going to start to think about solving the right problems for the user too. And there's a various ways to build empathy around the user. And the one we found that's particularly effective is using full story, actually. So we do these full story washing sessions. They're all hands. We make sure the product team's there for sure. And we spend hours together watching sessions, really feeling the pain of a user looking at their site, like, what is this business about? And just putting ourselves in their shoes. And what I've noticed is people who may come from a sales background or a marketing background and don't always think about the user or we're more comfortable in a sales-led kind of setup, if you can get them empathizing with the user, then you start to create that culture shift where they now start to have ideas about what the product should do, where in the past, maybe they only had ideas about sales process how to be more productive. Now they're thinking about, I saw this user do that. I know this type of user does that. What is our ICP? What problems are they solving? And it all comes from empathy, I think. Again, that probably is a design bias, but I think it's pretty powerful. No, I don't think it's bias at all. You actually just like had this big, you gave me an aha moment in my head because I'm like, I've heard this again. And again, not just like, like the way you said it, obviously, but the focus on empathy for the user. And I'll give you a couple of examples of what I've heard. Because like full story, uh, I think is an incredible way of doing that where you watch, okay, here's how people are actually using your product 
I know the folks at Wistia, uh, when I was talking to Andrew on a previous talk for the Product Bad Summit, that's he had a full story Fridays, like bring her lunch. Uh, we're gonna watch these sessions for an hour and just learn. And like a lot of the times for even like the design team or someone else, they're like, ah, like palm face, palm facing yeah. as they're going through this, like eh, they shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's just like, but they are. And I know at the last product that summit, we had folks from RD station. And one thing they found really effective for building empathy for the user was they had a user researcher just every single week, they were doing like a bunch of interviews and they would just have this as an open kind of room. Like anyone could come in, whether it's an executive or not, watch these interviews, learn what people are really struggling with for the product. And the last one I'll mention here is Tim from Ahrefs. And so he used to be here marketing and he actually started in support. And Mm. so he basically hires his marketing team from support. And what he does to keep everyone with the ear to the ground for the user is he makes them spend one day each month on support. And so I think it's a really cool way. Like you just really clarified something for me even. (laughs) Just just like this whole transition from sales-led to product-led. It has a ton to do with building empathy with the end user. How you do it, there's so many ways to do it. But yeah, thanks for that. You really clarified that for me. (laughs) Yeah. And another way to think about it, I think, is it's really easy, especially as an individual contributor, to get in your corner and think about, how do I optimize this thing that I own? And I think that works. That has like a lot of advantages. But if you're trying to facilitate a culture change, you also have to facilitate a change in how people spend their time thinking about the problems they're tackling. And sometimes that empathy point is like the catalyst to, to that change. At least I've noticed that in our case. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And so for anyone that wants to learn more about you, what you're up to, and Matcha, where can they find out more? I think getmatcha.com. We've got a great blog. I have a Twitter. I can't say I use it enough, but I am on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. But we do have a good blog. And our CEO, Finn Glover, posts a lot of stuff about the space, about content marketing, a little bit about our transition. So that I would point you there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. I really loved, especially at the end, your insights around just like the whole culture shift for any business. If you want to make it successful, you really do need to start building the empathy with that user. And I hear it time and time again, (laughs) whenever it's learning how companies made the transition from sales to product, that is just that important. I'm so happy that that is the the thing you mentioned, because you reminded me of just like how many times I keep hearing this. And it's, it's really clarifying because there's a pattern to this madness. It might yeah. seem like this whole transition from sales-led to product-led, there, it's just all madness. But there's some consistent things you can do here that successful companies who have made that shift keep doing. And maybe you should consider it if you're making that transition yourself. So thank you for coming on. This was a blast. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed this episode.